Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. wonder if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Ikea. My wife and I, I, I'm not ashamed to admit it, I love Ikea. It's like the weirdest thing. I love Ikea until you bring something home and try to build it, right? Because when you try to build it, you you break out the instructions and there's no words, there's just pictures. And, and the pictures have like something like a guy hitting his thumb, thumb with a hammer or whatever else. And you're like, I'm supposed to avoid that, but I have no idea what exactly I'm supposed to do in this step. And so you build this thing and you construct this thing and you put it together. And, and at the end, you have this kind of wonky piece of furniture that's kind of sort of leaning together, right? We all have had that experience. The temptation of cheap furniture that you can furnish your house with might not worth be worth the frustration you have of putting that piece of furniture together. This morning, we stumble upon directions, directions for the construction of a tabernacle, which is basically a big tent that God was going to dwell in and all of the accompanying furniture therein. And if we're not careful, we might assume that this is like that piece of Ikea furniture that, uh, you know, God had given these kind of vague uh, instructions and they were supposed to follow these instructions as best they could. And voila, at the end of Exodus, God would come and dwell with his people. But what I want to draw our attention to this morning is not so much the uh, directions themselves, but kind of tucked inside those directions are actually some statements about the priorities of our God, about what exactly he wants to accomplish in these two or three chapters that we're going to look at here this morning. So I think when we unveil this, as we kind of read through these instructions, here's what we're going to see, is that God's people share God's priority for God's presence to dwell in their midst. God's people should share God's priority for God's presence to dwell in their midst. And what ultimately we're seeing this morning is we're seeing a statement from our God to say, I want to dwell with my people. I want to be in the midst of my people. I want what garden, the Garden of Eden had, which was me dwelling with my people. What we'll see this morning is a trajectory for our God that starts off with the Garden of Eden and is restated here in Exodus of God dwelling in the midst of his people, reaffirmed in the building of the temple under Solomon, and ultimately rebuilt in the construction of Jesus who becomes our true temple so that we might dwell with God forever in the eternity in Revelation 21. That's the trajectory we're heading on this morning. I want to kind of do things differently this morning. I'm going to bore you with a lot of instructions, right? And we're going to talk about these chapters and what exactly this tabernacle is and how these things are constructed. Don't worry, there's pictures, right? When you pick up a big book, you want to make sure there's lots of pictures. There's pictures this morning. But then we're going to dive into these four observations that will be the bulk of our sermon this morning. First of all, observation number one, the tabernacle is to be built according to God's design. Observation number two, the tabernacle was made to move. 
Observation number three, God was with his people. And observation number four, God's presence was costly. And finally, we'll kind of put a bow around this and pull it all together and see how we might love Christ more because of it. This morning, I want to dive right in. And we're not going to read every portion of our passage this morning. There's just too much. But I am going to summarize large portions of it for you, and we'll just kind of walk through it. First, let's take a look at this tabernacle. Having ratified the covenant, which we saw last week with Brian, uh, these Israelites, God is directing these Israelites how to dwell in their midst. And he starts with this call to contribution that Jesse has read for us this morning in chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. And the contributions were to be from the heart. If you look at 25.2, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. These contributions were to be valuable. They were to be items of gold and silver and bronze, purple yarns and, and clothes and goat's hair and oil and spices and all of these things that you just don't find in a desert. Finally, the contributions were to be inviting. Look at what verse 8 says. I do want you to look at 25 verse 8. I think this is central to our passage this morning. Uh, God says to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. See, verse 8 tells us the purpose, that I may dwell in your midst. As we're talking about all of these items that are to be constructed, we remember that this is God's design for dwelling with his people. This is how God lives in the midst of his redeemed Israelite nation. And verse 9 tells us, the strategy. Obedience is the strategy. The Israelites were to do exactly as they were told. And so the first thing he starts with is the Ark of the Covenant in verses 10 through 20. Now, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know all about the Ark of the Covenant, right? It'll melt your face if you're a Nazi. The ark was to be 52 inches long, 31 inches tall, 31 inches wide. It's roughly the size of a Yeti cooler and only half the cost. It was to be covered in gold inside and out. It had poles on the side on which to carry the ark from location to location. And on top of it was this construction called the mercy seat. This was a, a giant lid on this box and on which both ends there was cherubim. It, Figured the presence of God as God was surrounded by angels. These two cherubim would be on the sides and God himself would sit or dwell in the midst of this mercy seat. And so it was to be laid over with gold. And inside the ark, they were to put the, the law of the covenant, right? So that is verses 10 through 22. Verses 23 through 30, we see the construction of this table of showbread. The table was three feet long, two and a half feet tall, one and a half feet deep. It was overlaid with pure gold. It also had holes for carrying. And all of its instruments, the plates, the dishes, the everything else was made of gold. The idea was that for this item that every Sabbath, uh, the priest would go into the holy place and he would arrange 12 loaves, one for each tribe of Israel, and burn incense in the presence of God. See, the idea is that God is inviting his people to a banquet, inviting his people to come and eat before him. And so these priests would consume this bread every week. Verses 31 through 40 is the lampstand, right? See this lampstand that you have in front of you? 
They were to make this lampstand of, guess what? Guess what it was to be made of? Gold, right? But this time it was to be of hammered work, whatever that meant. It probably means that it was to be uh, hit with a particular like tool that had a, a kind of given it a sheen or a kind of finished product look. Notice too that verses 32 through 33 describe that it was to have branches and blossoms and flowers and calyxes. I learned something this week. A calyx is the leaf that forms underneath a flower. The idea was that this lampstand was to look like a tree, like an almond tree specifically. Now that God has described the furniture in verse 20 or in chapter 25, he turns in chapter 26 and he describes the structure of the tent, the tabernacle itself. How are they supposed to form this thing? And he starts off in verses 1 through 10, kind of describing the construction of the curtains. All were made with this fine twined linen. And they were to have cherubim kind of skillfully worked in or, or kind of uh, embroidered. I don't. I don't know. I don't know the right terms, but it was supposed to have these images of cherubim uh, stationed on the curtains, and each curtain was to have loops on the top edge. And what happens is ultimately these uh, curtains will get fastened together, and at the end of the construction, there would be four layers of kind of different cloths that would go over top of this tabernacle. And so it describes the construction of these clasps in verses 11 through 14. These were to be made of brass. They were held up by these frames of acacia wood that were 15 feet long. And there was, there was just a lot of frames. I couldn't count them up. They were just too confusing. But those frames would rest upon a series of silver bases. And then in the midst of that, 31 through 37 says that there's these veils that they would create, right? These veils were to kind of block the view of certain things. And so the first veil that they described was the veil that would go between the holy place and the most holy place. See, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, was to be kind of closed off. And only one time a year would a priest enter into that section and put offering, put blood on the mercy seat for the sins of Israel. Outside of that was the holy place, which had the table of showbread and the lampstand, and that was for the priests to go in weekly or, or as they needed to. And so the second veil was to go at the front of this tabernacle so that any old random Joe walking by just couldn't go right by and see the Ark of the Covenant inside. Verse 27, or chapter 27, excuse me, describes the construction of the courtyard and its furniture. And it starts off with one of the most important pieces. In verses 1 through 8, we see the construction of this bronze altar. This is where these sacrifices were made uh, daily uh, by the priests. And so this altar was to be seven and a half feet wide on each side, four and a half feet tall. It was to be built of acacia wood. It had these things called horns on the altar. Some of it uh, had some grating. You can see it on the picture there. We don't know exactly how all of that worked, but the grating was to be covered in bronze. And this tabernacle was to sit in the middle of this court that was there, described in verses 9 through 19. And what happened is they were supposed to create this perimeter kind of fence. Again, it stood, uh, you know, 150 feet on its longest side. That would be uh, the north and south side and 75 feet on its east and west sides. All the perimeter frames would be seven and a half feet tall so that even Ryan Filbrin couldn't see over the top of it, right? The west side had an opening that was 30 feet wide. 
because every person who wanted to come and make a sacrifice would go and meet the priest there. They would slay the animal and put it on the altar. That should give us a sense of what this tabernacle is, right? God has very specific, particular instructions that he wants to do. He has particular items that need to be created. He's collecting all of these items to see that done. Now let's talk about some observations that we have from this two or three chapters that we're looking at. First observation is this, the tabernacle is to be built according to God's design. Well, you say that's without saying, but just highlight these verses. We look at 2540 verse A, and see that you make them after the pattern made for them. And then again in chapter 26, he says, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. In chapter 27, as it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. See, what God is telling his people, excuse me, what he's telling Moses is that there is no room for freelancing in this endeavor. There's no creative license given to Israel in what they're about to create. He doesn't ask for something resembling a tabernacle. He doesn't ask for something in the shape of or in the form of the Ark of the Covenant. He gives very specific designs, noting the materials, the size, even the inlays or the artistic designs that are to be made. See, in fact, this was to set the table for all of God's people that when God speaks, he expects our meticulous obedience. He doesn't ask for something resembling honesty or something in the form of sexual purity. No, he has specific outcomes in mind. By the way, the stakes were high for this. The Israelites didn't follow the instructions. The result wasn't just a, a poorly constructed tabernacle, not just a piece of Ikea furniture that leaned a little bit. It was that God would not dwell with them. We'll see later that this is a big deal. Uh, these people lived in the wilderness. They were surrounded by foreign nations that wanted to defeat them and eradicate them. They needed every bit of God's presence to go with them. So observation number one, the tabernacle was to be built according to God's design. Observation number two is this, the tabernacle was made to move. It was mobile. Notice these passages. Now, I know this is exciting stuff, but I've highlighted all the uses of the word poles in these three chapters. I'm not going to read them all for you, but you can see in 25, there's three different instances of, of places or, or items that were to be built with poles. The Ark of the Covenant was to be built with poles. The table of showbread was to be built with poles. The altar itself was to be built with poles. The idea was that they were going to take this or pick this thing up and move it. All of these, uh, the big items were to be moved. Notice that when they construct the altar, they don't make it completely out of bronze. They make it out of wood so that they can carry it, right? In fact, this is kind of one of the big differences that happens between the tabernacle and the temple that will be constructed later is that the tabernacle was meant to be mobile, but the temple was made of stone and it was in a particular location. It didn't move. In fact, the Israelites were called to come to it on a regular basis for their holidays and their sacrifices. But here, God is tying himself to his nomadic people. 
We might remember, if we go back to our time in Genesis, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob looked after sheep. They moved from location to location, and they didn't settle themselves down into particular cities or houses. They moved. They lived in tents. Now, the God of the Israelites is tying himself and associating himself to these people by himself living in a tent. As his people picked up and moved, so he also would be one who picks up and moves. Now, it's worth noting that God himself was the one who directed his people. When his presence lifted up and moved, the Israelites were to move with him. This person, this God, was identifying with his moving nomadic people. The third observation is this, God was with his people. In fact, this might be the most important observation we have this morning. There's a number of important texts in this regard, and we'll put them up on the screen. Exodus 25, 8, we read that this morning, that I might dwell in their midst. He says the same idea in chapter 25, verse 22, there, I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, there are, are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you and a commandment for the people of Israel. Excuse me. Twenty-five thirty says this, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. I highlight that because it is an invitation from God for the priest to come and eat before him. See, God was dwelling in the midst of the people. In fact, the lampstand which was to look like this tree, was to remind us of the Garden of Eden. It reminds us of the presence of God. See, God desires to be with his people. Remember, remember, God would eventually have Israel build a temple, right? David offered to build a house for God. God told him, no, he would not do it, but he would allow his son Solomon to build it. And then ultimately, Christ himself will dwell among us. Like John 1.14 says, he tabernacles in our midst. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. So observation number three, God was with his people. Finally, God's presence was costly. If we look back at this section that Jesse read for us this morning. We see a costly interaction. Look with me at Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine, lin fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ranskins, skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for fragrant incense, onyx stones and stone setting excuse me, stones for setting, and for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. What's happening here? Well, first, I want to highlight just two things about the costliness of God's presence. First, they were to take up these wealthy items and give them back to God. Now, we might ask the question naturally, where does this nomadic people who have been slaves for 400 years get gold and silver and bronze? 
Where do they collect fine twined linen and all of these high dollar items? Well, Exodus has told us that answer, that they took that as they plundered these Egyptian people. Not that they went into their house and ransacked them. No, they went to their neighbors in Egypt and said, do you have any high dollar items you would like to donate to me? And of course, you know, they smiled and said, yes, I have all kinds of wealth I'd like to give to you. But God's foresight, he sent the Israelites out of Egypt with great wealth that he had amassed, they had amassed from that nation. And now, as God is constructing that tabernacle, he's using those items from his own redemption of Israel to build his tabernacle so that he can dwell in their midst. It's worth noting this morning that when God asks for something, his grace alone provides it. When God calls us to donate, when calls us to give of ourselves freely, his grace is what provides the things that we donate. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It's by grace you've been saved through faith and that we're called out by this grace into works, good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. So they gave up their wealth. Secondly, they tied him, themselves to his direction. That's what verse 9 is describing for us, right? They took up to do exactly as he showed them. They weren't going to do it on their own anymore. They weren't going to self-direct. They were going to live according to the design of their good, gracious, delivering God. See, this morning, as we kind of step away from this passage for a second and just kind of look at the broad scope of what's happening, we see this. We see that God's presence is costly, but it's worth it. God's presence is costly, but it's worth it. Now, I just want to give a warning about this passage because there's many ways that we can misinterpret exactly what's going on. There's no shortage of over-spiritualizing or dehistoricizing this passage in front of us. I remember once sitting in, in a meeting, hearing someone describe how a church should go about its worship service based upon the structure of the tabernacle. And so they said, you know, when you come into the court, it was loud and, and energetic and everything was happening. And so you are uh, supposed to start off your services with, a, you know, just a really lively song, kind of, you know, get the bass drum going and everything else, right? But as you draw closer and closer to the close of your service, it gets quieter and quieter until finally you end up in the most holy place where you're reflecting on God's goodness. Maybe that was in God's mind. I just have a hard time envisioning that. See, this morning, David Helm has given us a great diagram that we can kind of look through. You see that red line? I like to make scare graphics there. The red line is the scary thing, right? We want to move straight from our passage to application to us today. And so if we did that this morning, I would tell you, you should all go home and you should build a tabernacle in your backyard. It's what you should do. But what he outlines for us is that we say, we want to look at our text and we want to say, what does it mean to them then? Not yet, not yet. Back up. There we go. What does it mean to them then? And then how does that reflect upon the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection? And then what does that mean for us today? This is the work we have for us to do. Here's the temptation that we have. We want to go straight from our text to the gospel. We want to spiritualize it. We want to dehistoricize it. That's a word, I think. 
We want to take its history away. What is it that God wants us to see in this passage in 2024? See, the tabernacle temple theme runs from our passage this morning all the way through to the end of the Bible. It starts here, gets expanded in Solomon's building of the temple. But then when we get into the New Testament, it takes on a funny kind of thing, right? There's this thing that happens in John. We just finished kind of walking through John. And John opens his, his, his gospel in this way where he talks about the word. And in John 1.14, he says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. But that word dwelt, you can see as skeneo, it's to tent or encamp. It's literally the word that we would have used in Exodus 25 through 27. It's the word tabernacle. See, this Jesus came and he took on our flesh and he tabernacled, he dwelt with his own people. That is, whatever God is doing in Exodus, Jesus was also doing in the incarnation. Jesus was on earth to tabernacle with mankind. Jesus was the place where God and man were to meet together. But this isn't all that John has to say about Jesus as the tabernacle temple. In the very next chapter, Jesus is standing in the midst of the temple. He's frustrated with the sacrifice, the, the purchase of animals that's happening. And he starts driving out sheep from out of the temple. And, and the religious authorities come to him. They say, by what authority do you do this? And he says, tear down or destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus equates his own body with the temple. And we got to recognize if you were a Jewish person, how you would think about this statement, because the table or the temple had just been torn down some 500 years before this. It was King Nebuchadnezzar came into Judah, defeated Israel, tore down the temple, carted off all of the people of consequence. So when Jesus stands before them and says, you tear it down, I'll build it back up, it has deep spiritual significance. See, Jesus isn't mentioning something just theoretical. He was the true temple of God that would be torn down and rebuilt. Just as Israel's rebellion and sin had led to this destruction of a physical temple in Jerusalem, so now our rebellion and sin would lead to the destruction of Jesus and his resurrection. So Jesus would be raised up. The dwelling of God would truly be with man. So that when we get to Revelation chapter 21, this is what John writes. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. See, this is the movement. This is the trajectory of our God. He wants to dwell with his people and he constructs this tabernacle so that it might be a shadow of the person Jesus because when Jesus comes, he will be the meeting place of God and man, the meeting between sinful men and women and the holy righteous father. Jesus will be that nexus between heaven and earth. And someday what will happen because of Jesus's death and resurrection, he's making all things new. He will bring those two worlds and he'll mash them back together. This new Jerusalem will float from the sky and settle on the earth and God will dwell with his people for all eternity. Now here's the thing. This isn't all that the New Testament has to tell us about this tabernacle temple. The Bible also tells us that you and I, if we are in Christ, are a temple. This is 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. See, the point is this morning that you and I are meant to be a temple. And as we have faith in Jesus Christ, God sends his spirit, like verse 16 says, it fills us up. He goes on in chapter 6, and he lays out that you can't take the temple of God and unite it with a prostitute. You, you can't take this temple, uh, the presence of God, and unite it with sin. Like this, those things are in conflict. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Christian, if you're in Christ right now, you are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells within you through the resurrection and death and resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> Excuse me, you are the temple of God that the Spirit dwells in. This isn't just here in 1 Corinthians, it's in Ephesians chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We are God's temple. Now, here's what we do in our Americanized, do it yourself, American dream kind of way of doing things. We like to read a passage like 1 Corinthians 3, and we say, This is about me individually. And so we say, do you not know, Jason, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in Jason? And that is absolutely true. The problem is that the Greek Bible has a thing that's more like the Southern y'all. Now, some of you Southerners are just going to love this, right? You're saying that your distortion and breaking of the English language is actually a good thing. That's actually what's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is that God is saying, y'all, do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within y'all? It's collective. The you are God's temple is a second person plural. It's you all. See, Christian and Christians, together you are the temple of God. Together we are the dwelling place of God. You 
are called to watch your life and doctrine. You are called to walk and step with the Spirit. You are called to put off the old self and to put on the new self, which is being renewed day by day in the Spirit. You are called to put off these patterns of sinfulness and put on patterns of righteousness. You are called to place your faith continually in Jesus Christ. You are called to live out this life of faith day by day by day. You are called collectively, Christians, to remind each other of the goodness and mercies of God. See, the conduct that is outright defense, uh, defiance, that's sexual immorality, lying, slander, gossip, they, we should keep a short leash on those things. But we should be those who also police the temple, as it were. I don't like that language. Maybe I could find a better statement there. You know, in the Old Testament, this is what they did. You read through the books of Leviticus or Exodus or elsewhere, and you'll find uh, that if certain offenses were to be uh, punished by death, and so if someone was found in sexual immorality, uh, the adulterer and the adulteress were both to be stoned. And if someone was found uh, worshiping an idol, they were to be stoned to death. See, the nation of Israel was called to police itself. See, in the New Testament, what happens is that the church is called to police itself. That we can't just live in our isolated individualism that God has pulled us together as a people devoted to his holy, righteous name. Matthew 18 lays out a process that if our brother sins against us, we're supposed to go and show him his fault. And if he doesn't listen to us, we're supposed to take with us two witnesses. And if he doesn't listen to them, he's supposed to tell it to the church. There's this process of policing ourselves. See, the truth is this morning, Christian, if you are in Christ and you're here, there's a togetherness that we're looking to describe. Because this isn't just a you singular, this is a you plural. You all are the temple of God. We're called to be together. Listen, I get it. Some of you get frustrated when I talk about membership. Membership's not a new word in the New Testament. Um I would say there's a word called partnership in the book of Philippians that I think is pretty similar. And as we're describing locking arms together for the purpose of God's kingdom, I think that bears some of what the New Testament is talking about. So yes, you're right. We don't have the word membership in the New Testament, but, but we are a temple. We are his flock, his people, his sheep. There's lots of images about us being in or out. As we talk about being together as a church, I'm, I'm thinking in the back of my mind about this temple paradigm. We're called to be together. God has redeemed this stone and that stone and this stone and that stone, and he's bringing them all together into this spiritual house, as Paul and Peter both say that he can honor and glorify his name. See, here's what happens is that when you go to your workplace and you say, I believe that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead, and your coworker looks back and says, that's ridiculous. 
You say, well, yeah, but there's 90 other members at Gospel Community Church that believe the same thing. I'm part of this temple. I'm part of this togetherness that God's building. I'm not on my own. I'm not a vigilante. I'm not a lone wolf. I'm together with God's people being built into a spiritual temple for his purpose. So next week, we're going to talk about the priesthood. And I'm going to do the same thing. Jesus is your true high priest and you're a high priest too. Well, not a high priest, a priest. Right? What happens is that as we look at the Old and New Testaments, all of the things that God describes were necessary for God to dwell with his people. That would be priest, tabernacle, sacrifice. Jesus becomes priest, temple, tabernacle, sacrifice. And we become priest, temple, sacrifice. So we're made new in Christ. We're being knit together. And I got to tell you, it's one of the most beautiful things. I wonder if you might join with us. You might lock arms with us and say, let's, let's affect this greater community of Troy. Let's, let's talk about Miami County. Let's talk about how we can plant churches. Let's talk about how we can do witness. Let's talk about how we can be a, a group that lifts up and exalts the glory of Christ. Because we're a temple. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would impress this upon our hearts and our minds. Lord, you have pulled together men and women of such different compositions. You have brought the young and the old. You have brought the, the richer and the poorer. You have brought those of varied interest and background together you honor your name as you stitch them together for your purpose. You lay them on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone so that we are built, being built up into a spiritual house for your glory. So Lord, we pray, pray this evening or this morning for your absolute, utter glory in our midst. Help us with wisdom love, care, to be invested in the lives of others around us so that they might take on conformity to your Son in the Spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.